0: This is Subject Matter, the show for creators who want to grow with audio. I'm Ben Bradbury. Friends, how are we doing? I hope you are having a great morning, afternoon, evening, whenever you're tuning in to this episode. Make today a great one. I appreciate you taking the time to listen in. I've got a question for you. If you started your podcast, hopefully you've started a podcast if you're listening to this or maybe you're thinking about it, how much thought did you put into the way that you're going to promote it? How much thought did you put into the audience that you were going to reach? If you're anything like me, when I started Subject Matter three and a half years ago, I didn't even think about either of these questions. I gave the audience a glancing thought, didn't think about distribution at all, and learned both of them the hard way. And my guest today... Thinks about podcasts completely differently, which is why we're going to learn from her and not me, because she knows exactly what she's talking about this topic. Her name is Ray Palermo. She works at megaphone.fm, which is a podcast hosting platform as part of the Spotify family. And Ray thinks about podcasts in terms of reverse engineering. So you need to figure out your audience and how you're going to grow your show before you press record on the first episode. That's totally counter to how most people approach their podcasts. Ray is an expert at something that you probably haven't heard of before, which is this idea of consortium marketing or building a consortium. A consortium is essentially having a group of podcasters who all share a similar topic and a similar audience, and then building a curated feed of those podcasts. So this is a pretty interesting idea. If you think about on subject matter, you're just listening to me or one of the other podcasts you like, you're just listening to that creator. Now imagine that there's a best of around a topic that you like and there's a feed that is curated specifically for that. That's what a consortium is. And Ray has seen podcasters get to millions of downloads being part of one. And so we break down exactly how you can be part of one too and how you can start one. And then we'll also talk about what's important for every creator, making money. We'll talk about the five different types of monetization that Ray Sees creators can take she goes really in detail here so definitely listen out for that segment at the end and this is really geared around when you are going to scale so as you're growing as a podcaster you're starting to get that traction how can you monetize well Ray has got some answers for you this is a fun episode it's super jam-packed so make sure to take notes because there's a lot to learn and I hope you enjoyed let me know what you think you can reach me on twitter at Bradbury underscore and you can email me as well ben at workweek.com. I'd love to hear from you. Please enjoy. Ray, welcome to Subject Matters. great to have you on the show. Thank you, Ben. Great to be here. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely. Well, one of the things we're going to talk about today is one of the themes, I should say, is technology. And I'm really interested in the work you're doing at Megaphone, and we're going to jump into that in a little bit. And something that struck me the last time we spoke is how technology has been really pivotal for you in being able to recover from some past setbacks that you've had. Could you share a bit more about how technology has impacted or created that kind of um, pivotal catalyst, if you like, when you have encountered challenges before?
1: Sure. I started off in the content business, focusing uh, really on the storytelling and understanding how to connect with an audience. But what I found out pretty quickly is that's all wonderful, but unless you understand that last mile and how to reach your audience and not knowing how you're reaching your audience really depends on the technology. I've come to the point of saying quite often that data is curative. When you don't know what's happening with your publishing, it's really hard to pivot. It's hard to make good decisions what you end up doing is making good guesses, which usually leads to issues down the, the road about sustainability and being able to reach that audience. And there was times when I would speak to podcasters and they would spend months and months on the content. And when I, I would ask them to raise their hand if they thought about how they were going to publish and how they were going to know if publishing was going well. <laughs> and not one hand was raised. And it was heartbreaking. So in this part of my career have really doubled down on the fact that the data needs to be part of the creative process, not something that's left for the last minute.
0: And that to me signals that I think there's a difference in how a lot of first-time creators think about their shows, which is just get the content out there and then we'll look at the downloads when we have some more data to look at. But you're actually saying that this should be part of the foundation that goes into a show. So what are the kind of different approaches or or different, maybe it's metrics that you would use to look at on a show-by-show basis? Because I'm assuming that obviously the data that you use is different on a, on a case-by-case basis. So how does that differ depending on the type of show that you're working with?
1: Well, I always laugh because it's like the most exciting day is the day you launch your podcast. And the worst day is the second day when you realize no one's listening. <laughs> and that's a problem for the vast majority of podcasters. You know, it really is about how fi- how to find an audience. Um, so it's not just about downloads, but it is about where you're publishing, how you're publishing, cross-promotion, and then being able to actually track your success. If you run a marketing campaign Do you know that somebody actually converted to listening in the the many ways that you can do that? So it's, it's really treating the marketing component as important as the content component. And I would go so far as to say is that strategically, you should be talking about your audience and your distribution, even before you record your first show. Uh, I really believe in this idea of sort of reverse engineering rather than creating a show and hoping to find an audience. You want to think about your audience and create a show. So the data is going to be, you know, where am I reaching people? Where are the downloads happening, both geographically but also psychographically? One of the things that Megaphone has done early on was partner with Nielsen. So we're able to get pretty in-depth information. Now, the Nielsen analytics were traditionally used for targeting for advertising, but they have been really instrumental for content teams to understand sort of the psychographic makeup of their audience. And then you're in a position where you can start to do cross-promotion with like-minded shows or shows that make sense. And we're going to talk a little bit, I think, about consortium marketing, which is even more heavy on on where am I advertising my show and, and how is that working? But I think it's really critical that we think about podcasting, not just as standalone content, but as a way to create a community and a community that identifies itself with the content. When they see the title, when they see the subtitle, they see themselves reflected. And really, that's so important if you don't have millions and millions of dollars to promote a show. Understanding your avatar, so to speak, and really thinking about where do they live online? How can I reach them even before you know, I think about actually publishing episode one?
0: Yeah, I love this framework of giving equal if not more attention to distribution and audience targeting than the content itself because shows grow in kind of two ways you have organic word of mouth and that comes from when someone wants to recommend your show and that comes from the quality of the content but that's not easy to track and as if you're a marketer and you want to grow your show quantifiably you're probably going to need to go the other way which is getting impressions on other feeds and having your show feature on those feeds and then track back. And in order to do that, that's something you have to bake in from day one and think, okay, what are the other shows that they are aligned to mine? And we're going to talk about that in, in a little bit. Before we get there though, I want to zoom in on something else you touched on, which is the data that you think is important for listeners to have with their audience. Because let's be honest, podcast data leaves a lot to be desired generally. It's quite hard to know who your listener is. You have Kind of minimal data points. And something you shared last time we spoke really struck a chord with me, which is that we as a culture are really accepting of this lack of transparency right now. Could you speak to why you think we've got to this point? And then maybe you can touch on why transparency is such an important value for you and the work that you're doing with Megaphone.
1: Sure. I mean, I had directed a few podcasts and created some networks. And I had just been so frustrated with the lack of transparency. All I knew was downloads, which was so vague and, and really didn't give me an understanding about my audience or how it was responding to my marketing. And with Megaphone, before the company became Megaphone, a technology, some folks who've been in the business a while will remember that we were a network prior to that. We were called Panoply. I actually had started with the company when we were still Panoply. And the reason we built Megaphone was because we were frustrated with the lack of transparency in the marketplace for podcast hosting. So really, Megaphone was built out of a series of pain points that we were feeling about not understanding the data, not getting access to the data in a timely fashion, but also being able to co-create with other podcasts. So Panoply was a network of 100 shows that were, some were owned and operated, some were just we were doing sales for, some we were tracking for promotional purposes. So we really were frustrated with the inability one to get good data on what's happening with the shows in a timely fashion. And I think that's really important because getting answers is one thing, but getting them in the right timing is really important. When I first saw Megaphone prior to, to joining the company, it was a jaw-dropping experience. I had no idea it was possible to even understand, hour by hour, how my podcast was performing across all the different platforms. I also didn't know I could pull a report 24-7, where I could actually see what was happening if it was 2 in the morning, and I and I had one of those nights where I needed to understand or I needed to see how episode one was actually performing on Spotify or or some other platform, I could pull that report. I could take a real narrow view of what was happening, or I could take a more global view of all of my content. And I could access that 24-7. Most platforms, you could send an email to someone, hope you could hear from them in a couple of days. And then by the time you got the report, quite frankly, you forgot why you pulled it. (laughs) You know, there was such a delay. So I think because Megaphone was initially a content network, it sort of understood the need for the right people to get to the right information at the right time. And now that's just become exponential with monetization. So I think part of it is that we're a new industry in podcasting, right? We're we're in our infancy. And a lot of creators just don't know that we can get this information because it hasn't been displayed. Again, like I said, I you know been in podcasting for 8 years. I thought I'd seen every platform. Megaphone was somewhat of a mystery to me because I hadn't seen it before and it was like wow, this is possible, right? So I do think that the host platforms are going to continue to evolve. This just happens to be a platform that you know just crossed its one billionth download. So there's big partners here demanding a lot of the platform. And so we're going to continue to see more and more of that data becoming available to creators.
0: So one of the things you shared there that I want to highlight is a problem that I think a lot of new podcasters face is how quickly they can get feedback on their shows. And this is one of the the problems I see with the RSS feed is you have to upload an episode and then if you want to get feedback or give feedback to your audience on that episode, you have to wait until you then upload again. And it's kind of this clunky technology that has been great for podcasts so far, but it's kind of like what got you to where you are won't get you to where you need to be. And I like what Spotify is doing with Anchor and kind of reinventing the whole, the RSS model, but in tandem, You've also got what's interesting with Megaphone is that it's now so much easier to actually get intel from your listeners in real time. So you don't have to speculate for weeks at a time. You can actually, as you say, if you feel like going on that 2 a.m. data binge, which uh, guilty, by the way, I've definitely been there. You can do that very easily. Um, <laughs>
1: Many of us have. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, and And it makes the I think it creates more of a connection to your listeners as well. So there's, it's definitely something to think about for creators is not just what's the hardware that you're using, having a quality microphone, but also what's the software that you're using to power your stack? Are you using something that's going to give you those real time insights into your audience?
1: Yeah. And it's important to be able to see what's working because unless you see what's working, you can't repeat it. And if you can't repeat what's working, sustainability is going to be an issue. You know, it's not the sexy part of podcasting, but it's so crucial to really understand this business component. Not very few podcasters have a huge budget. I was on a panel with the head of media and digital for own oh, Oprah's network, and I laughed because I usually say, Well, unless you're Oprah, <laughs> you don't have millions of dollars to your podcast. And um, you know. <laughs> Well, I happen to be Oprah, you know. So, you know, in in that situation, it's a very different kind of discussion, right? You can spend millions of dollars to target, and you've got all kinds of technology that you can use on the marketing side. But for most of us, on in the independent world, and even through small networks and folks just getting started in the business, even if you had a lot of money, you don't quite know where to spend it. So, the data part of it is not only where are people listening, because there's so many platforms. We actually capture in megaphone the time of day, the day hmm. of the week and the time of day. Now, now, why would you capture that kind of data? That just seems so strange. What we found out is that if you publish at the same time that your audience is active, your conversion is much higher, sometimes 20 30% higher. So we capture that data to say, you know, you shouldn't just randomly publish on Tuesday at 11 Eastern time, because that's some sort of lore (laughs) in podcasting. (laughs) You should really look at the data and see when is my audience most active and publish at that time. So it's, you know, really understanding what content is trending, where am I getting heard, and more importantly, where am I not getting heard? If my Spotify audience is low, what can I do to boost that? And there's amazing information out there on how to boost your Spotify audience. And um, obviously those on Megaphone, because we are owned by Spotify, we get some cool insider baseball information on, on how to kind of boost your viewability on Spotify. But all of this is available uh, to most folks, but you don't know that you don't need it until you see, oh my gosh, our, you know our Spotify audience is really low compared to what it should be. So it's that kind of, of strategic thinking around the content. Because let's face it, the storytelling's not broken for the most part. If you've got a good podcast and you understand your audience, there's really not a problem there. The problem is how is that then reaching the right audience? And how are you thinking strategically about how to grow that? But again, you know, if you don't know what's out there, you're just good guesses instead of good business.
0: Yeah, it's like adding a adding a strategic layer to content quality and I think that links really nicely with this idea of once you've created something quality how do you then get it out there? So, let's dig into your playbook because you are world-class at what you call consortium marketing. I think to maybe set the stage here, it would be great if you could tell the story of how you first discovered the power of consortiums and give our listeners a little primer on what they are as well.
1: Well, it was kind of a day I'll never forget, and I tell this story all the time, and I know it's something that you meet someone and they tell you about what they're doing, and and it just kind of blows your mind. And And I met this gentleman who was running a network of podcasts focused around horses. I thought, well, that's interesting. You know, how many horse podcasts does one need? (laughs) You know, not being a horse person myself, full transparency. And it was about a dozen podcasts, but they were all really telling the stories within the sort of community that are focused on, on horses and really understanding that world. And so it was about 12 podcasts and he disclosed publicly that they had closed over a million dollars that first year. And I was shocked. I'm like, how, how does a 12 podcasts about Horses, clear million dollars where most podcasts are struggling just to like, you know, get their expenses paid. And it really opened up my world to this idea of independent consortiums, people who have different parts of the same story talking to the same community coming together. And creating an opportunity to cross promote with one another. But more importantly, and again, this was not a huge audience. This was not your top 20% download kind of audience. It was not about scale. It was about targeting. And I know this, we talk a lot about targeting and podcasting, but I do think from a psychographic standpoint, they had found a niche and they were able to tell sort of a rainbow of stories around that niche. And of course they went to the horse products who were thrilled. Because this was who they were trying to reach, they were trying to spend money throwing mass information out there and hoping it would connect with the horse community. And here they were able to absolutely nail it. And he was charging CPMs in the three figures, right? So you didn't need a huge audience in order to make it sustainable. And that really was a big change. and And since then, I've continued to watch him and we have a conversation now and again, and I'm um so this idea of consortiums really, Lit me up and ironically, or, you know, as it would unfold, Megaphone is really built for that kind of consortium marketing. Because if you remember, Panoply had a hundred shows, right? And so our goal with Megaphone creating this platform was how do these shows work together cohesively to do cross promotion? Because we still know that's one of the most powerful ways to grow an audience, right? Is to get your message on like-minded podcasts. But it's so difficult to do on a one-off trying to manage and trying, you know, it's really, really challenging. So this idea about podcasts coming into Megaphone and working with one another really began to take off. And since then, we've launched the Physicians Network, the Dog Network, you know, fill in the blank. There is is really a network for everyone. And, And one of the biggest technology parts of consortium marketing is the user-based role log logins. So you have to be able to protect data from podcast to podcast. So you need to be able to have podcasts work independently within a platform, but also for a network director to easily be able to then cross-promote or better yet, bring in sponsors on the direct side, right? And it just so happened that Megaphone was really set up for that. So we spend a lot of time thinking about permission role-based logins, being able to create these little silos within a single account. And then when it makes sense for cross-promotion and or sponsors, it's very easy then for them to act as a whole, a cohesive whole, and lie the opportunity for us to really complement a consortium and give them the tools that they needed without necessarily having them to own each other's IP or have concerns about data control.
0: So a lot of our listeners are independent podcasters And if they're listening to this, I can imagine they're thinking, okay, this idea of a consortium sounds great. Bringing together a network of like-minded shows that share a common audience, a common community, and we can, I love your phrase, build a rainbow of stories around them and kind of serve that niche from a variety of different angles. So if you're an independent podcaster, let's go through the process of building a consortium. So how do you first of all, identify potential fits, and then what does it take to reach out to them? What kind of offer are you looking at at building? Because something else really interesting that you shared there is that a lot of, this isn't sustainable if you're doing it as a one-off swap, but what you're alluding to is that this can be a sustainable habit that shows can use to grow consistently over time. So How do you identify that fit and then reach out to someone with the intent of crafting an offer that's sustainable for both of you?
1: Well, like everything, you always want to think about the audience first, right? You want to think about essentially a consortium around a certain topic is a curated feed. It's curating content, because if you know if they like this podcast, they're probably going to like this, this, and this, right? Taking the playbook from Amazon. If you like this, then you're really going to like this, this, and this. (laughs) So when people think about creating a consortium, they do want to think curation. What kinds of podcasts would kind of complement each other without duplicating? And it's really kind of an interesting craft, in a way. And it solves discoverability issues as well, because you're saying to someone, hey, if you've if you found this podcast, settle in, relax. We found 10 or 12 other podcasts we think you're probably going to resonate with because we understand you as a psychographic, right? We understand how you think and maybe how you play. So that's number one, is really being very strategic around the curation of, you don't wanna have the same show repeated 10 times, right? That's just not going to make sense. The the good news is there's so much content out there, creating a well-curated podcast network of 10 or 12 shows is really not that difficult because there are such, there's so many great creators out there that are looking for you. A lot of creators are fantastic at storytelling, but maybe that business development and monetization is just really not their bag. And so something's going to suffer if they have to focus on both, where if you come into a a consortium, and I like that word better than network, because sometimes network, you think about IP owning and you and controlling, but really a consortium is really people who are agreeing to come together for the benefit of the whole. Right. And you're really understanding that they're going after the same psychographic. But the second thing that's so critical is you really have to look at the downloads because it's just as hard to work with someone who's got three downloads than three million. (laughs) Mm. So you have to look at, you know, sort of the, the nuts and bolts of how many downloads do they have? Because the key with consortium is that you're bringing established audiences together to create a momentum. And so when you do introduce new shows, they're immediately going to get an opportunity to grow quickly because you can introduce them to an established audience. So you do have, and there's so many tools out there now where you can actually see how many downloads do they get roughly, and then strategically looking at not only the curation part of it, but what are the size of the audience that they're bringing? And maybe the goal is to get to Half a million downloads or a million downloads across this consortium. And so you have to be strategic on the download side as well.
0: So is this like, let's say we're the independent creator, we've reached out to a handful of shows and we've got seven shows that have said, yes, we're in for this consortium. And now you've got eight shows in your pod. Let's just say it's marketing, for example, a lot of listeners are marketers. They're in that kind of sphere. Is the next step then to create a Curated feed, so a new RSS feed or a new wherever you're hosting feed that features episodes or highlights from each of those shows that people go to, and then you'd call it like what whatever branded like the marketing network feed. Is that where it would live?
1: Absolutely. In addition to, I mean, first and foremost, everyone wants to keep you know creating the content and making sure that they're doing what they need to do and and continuing with their content for the greater of the whole. But if you do create additional feeds, it's exciting now because Google is sort of waking up and realizing that the more feeds that you have, the bigger footprint you have in a data sense, the better you're going to actually paginate with discoverability. I've talked to some podcasts who, when they came together as a consortium, they actually saw a a doubling of their audience size without any additional marketing. And we had to kind of scratch our heads and we're like, well, how is that possible? But when they begin to identify as a cohesive whole, there is ways that those podcasts begin to create as a consortium, just the digital footprint now with multiple feeds. And as you're saying, not only a network feed, maybe the best of network feed, or maybe you know, within that marketing consortium, there's a certain topic where everyone has done an episode on that topic. And maybe there's another feed about just the best shows around that topic. The key is you want to get as many feeds out there as possible because the more data that's out there, the higher you're going to resonate with some of the algorithms for discovery. So it can really be a benefit.
0: Totally. I think that that's a great metric for new podcasters to be aware of is how many feeds does my show live on? And there's a difference between guest on where you would do a feed swap and then live on is where you actually own some of that retail. So let's talk about the ways that this becomes sustainable as well. Because what I think is very easy when you think about distribution is to reach out to a podcast and say, Hey, let's guest on each other's shows. Or let's do a let's do a feed swap where I'll feature your episode on my show and my episode on your show, vice versa. But you're talking about something that is sustainable. So what do you think is the difference between a consortium and a network-driven feed swap strategy where you're just, you're simply trading retail on each other's RSS feeds?
1: I think it's not gonna be a surprise to anyone this takes time. You know, there's really no such thing as an overnight success, right? And it takes time and it takes consistency. So really it's about coming together for better tech, better monetization, better marketing, but it's also a commitment to stay together for a period of time so that you can really take advantage of the data. Because one-offs are great, but as we know, that's really not how people discover or, you know, really commit to a podcast. They hear it over and over again to friends, mention it to them again, (laughs) you know, it's one of those things that has sort of an organic life as well. And that takes time. Consortiums really need to settle in and make a time commitment, not forever, but at least a year to work together because it does require multiple exposures to an audience in order for them to maybe finally click on subscribe to something else. And there's lots of ways to sort of manage those swaps, so to speak, within a consortium. What we've seen is that the pre-roll and the mid-roll are usually dedicated to monetization and we can talk, you know, more about that. And then the post-roll is usually something that advertisers are less thrilled about and it's perfect for cross-promotion. And we've actually built an entire layer of megaphone dedicated to just the promotion. And why we did that, again, is if you don't have the data to see how your promotion is actually working, how many people heard it, did anyone through third-party pixel tracking actually go to this other podcast and listen? Being really, again, data-focused on how your promotions are performing, because even a change in creative or positioning or timing can make a difference in conversion. So it really requires sort of rolling up your sleeves and and having, again, an understanding of it takes time. It's content-based, it's seasonal. And how is it that we continue to sort of build the sustainability over that time?
0: Totally. Yeah. And I love that opportunity as well that you talked about there on post-rolls being perfect for cross-promotion. Even for new podcasters who are just starting out, I think a great experiment to run is to start using those slots. So if you don't know what they mean, the pre-roll is before your show rolls, the mid-roll's in the middle, and then the post-roll's obviously the end. Start treating those slots as active promotional opportunities. So you can say, let's say I want to reach out to Ray's podcast. I can start subject matter by saying, hey, I just want to take a second to tell you about my friend Ray's podcast. She goes all into the difference between analytics and platforms, et cetera, et cetera. And then I can send Ray that episode. And now it's not just a, hey, do you want to start something together? It's, hey, I've already promoted you to my audience. I love your content. Let's take this to the next level. And so being tactical with the ways that you think about your inventory even if you're not ready to monetize is key. Let's close this out by talking about monetization, because I think one of the things that's interesting that you touch on with podcasts is that you're right. A lot of podcasters barely struggle to cover expenses with their show. And I think consortiums do open up these other interesting revenue models that creators can potentially be using. So, talk to us a little bit about what these different potential paths of monetization look like for a podcaster.
1: Sure. So, I've identified at this point about five different ways to monetize a podcast. I'm sure there's much more, and it's always increasing as, you know, the technology gets better and better. But I think just looking at it straightforward and in, in where we are with the industry today, one there is what we know as the host read, right? It's often referred to as the direct sale. And often podcasters, especially if they're in a certain niche, will have the wherewithal to go after a certain product that fits. Now, you wouldn't necessarily maybe go after the Fortune 500 because they have a whole other way of buying, which we'll talk about in a second. But there might be sort of b- below the fold kind of brands that fit well with your audience that are not getting pitched from agencies that you can reach out to and say, you know, I've got this captive audience. I think they fit your psychographic for your brand. Let's make a deal. And Megaphone has a campaign management platform that anyone can learn within, you know, 30 minutes. So that's one thing, is just being able to really think about where the brands, again, remember, we talked about ideally you've thought about this, you've thought about the lifestyle of your audience, you've thought about potential brands that might be interested. So that's number one. Number two is there is amazing agencies now that really focus on the direct sale host read. And we work with all of them. And that's kind of one of the advantages of Megaphone is that you can work with multiple agencies, you can work with a single one, and if they don't work out, you can easily pivot to another agency. But these direct sales agencies can be really helpful in sort of another level of being able to get your host-read direct campaign. Now, they usually take about 30% of what they bring in, which is an incredible deal, frankly, because if anyone's ever run a direct sale campaign, it takes some time and effort. And it's certainly something that if you can find an agency that'll work with you, and some of them will work with you with as little as 10,000 downloads a month. So there are more and more of these agencies cropping up that are kind of boutiquey. They sort of focus on certain areas, and we love working with all of them and helping our podcasts connect with them. Every day, I'm sort of connecting dots with podcasters and agencies who I think they could work well together. And then they use Megaphone as the way that they communicate those campaigns. The third one is what we know about dynamic ad insertion, DAI, which is, you know, becoming more and more the standard of podcast platforms. We know that there's always open inventory in any episode. What I mean by that is if you have two pre-roll, two mids and a post, these little insertion points where you're able to move content in and out of an episode, there's always open inventory and Megaphone had created the Megaphone-targeted marketplace, and then when we were bought by Spotify in December of 2020, it exploded into what's now known as the Spotify Audience Network. And what it does essentially is when there's an open piece of inventory, it looks at the 300 sellers around the globe that we have here at Spotify, and it looks at campaigns that they've set up to see if it would match the demographic profile So we have Fortune 500 brands coming to the Spotify audience network and buying the way they like to buy, which is demographic targeted, right? They like to buy men, 35 to 45, who are interested in motorcycles, right? They have that kind of targeting. And with Nielsen and some of our other data partners, we're able to actually target um, that demographic profile across the thousands and thousands of shows on Megaphone and Anchor and even Spotify Music. So we've been able to bring in this incremental revenue. Now, some podcasters get it kind of like, what kinds of brands are going to be there? And what kind of creative is there? They get a bit anxious about what might show up, understandably. But what this private marketplace has done, the Spotify audience network, is given podcasters control over two things. One, the ability for them to block any products or services in a sub-subcategory a level so that they can rest assured that... That particular brand is not going to be consistently represented on, uh, on their podcast. So there is controls. And secondly, the creative. What we don't want is a bunch of television or radio ads suddenly popping into what is a podcast creative and maybe upsetting, you know, the feeling and the intimacy of the experience. So what we've done, you know, with our studios team is we, create all of those messages. And they're very native sounding. They're very podcast friendly, if you will. And so they don't feel disruptive. They feel like, oh, this almost could be coming from the podcast itself. So we give podcasters control where they usually can get a little bit uncomfortable about a third party ad that they can't really know what it is and exactly what's being said. And we've been hugely successful at bringing in millions and millions of dollars for podcasters from these Fortune 500s that wouldn't necessarily know what to do with a single podcast buy, right? It's not their world. So that's the third, this sort of private marketplace. Fourth, there are things a bit more technical like DSPs, um, more programmatic is a word, a word that is often flown about where you're able to pop into another marketplace, some less controls, some lower CPMs. I mean, the thing about the Spotify audience network because of the targeting is our CPMs are quite high. And so there's plenty to go around, so to speak, when we're able to make those kind of deals. A DSP, it's like another way. And we use different technology on Megaphone to be able to access some of those third-party DSPs. But again, you're kind of getting to the point now where is this really incremental dollars worth it? Because you have less control and lower CPMs, but it's available. It's absolutely something that is possible. And then finally, subscription, which I think is really a fantastic way to bring in additional revenue. I know it's something that some folks have experimented with. We watched the most successful subscription program out there, which is Slate Plus. And we really looked at how they did it and what they did it. And it was really eye-opening to see that a well-programmed and well-executed subscription program can actually be a nice piece of revenue for podcasters. We actually ingested Supporting Cast, that whole infrastructure, into Megaphone as a subscription solution for our podcasters who want those private feeds, those ad-free feeds, and, and we've seen a real exciting proliferation of additional revenue for subscriptions. And uh, now the other benefit is that those shows do can show up on other platforms, which is fabulous because what you don't want is a subscription where, you know, your VIPs have to search for a special player or a special website to be able to listen to it. You want them to be able to get that feed on whatever they're whatever popular podcasting app they like. And and we've built a system that allows you to do that. So again, your own direct sales, working with a direct sales agency, you know, engaging a private marketplace like the Spotify audience network, looking at potential third-party DSPs, and then finally subscription. So that's a lot, right?
0: <laughs> it is, for sure. You've got options as a creator. There's no one... Bucket to, to fit into. And I think the nice thing there is, depending on what your strengths are, depends on how you can play things. So if you really are a craftsman or a craftswoman creating this really high, high value content, you can put that behind a paywall. If you're doing a daily show that has a lot of open inventory, then perhaps a marketplace to maximize that is a better fit for you. Or if you're really focused on creating this intimate connection with your listeners, maybe the host read ad is a good fit as well. So there's a lot of different paths that creators can take. Ray, let's round out today with a lightning round. So I'm going to share four questions and you've just got to say the first thing that comes into your head. You ready? Ready. What's one piece of software or hardware that you can't live without?
1: (laughs) That's a bit of (laughs) a... That's a bit of an easy one, right? I would say have a a comprehensive platform that you are able to get good information on for your distribution.
0: (laughs) Great answer. That was Um, a bit of
1: a softball.
0: (laughs) That was a doozy. Um, What's your favorite podcast that you're listening to right now?
1: Okay, so I am a dedicated armchair, which means for those who don't listen to it, um, I'm a big fan of Armchair Expert with Dak Shepard. So. Yeah, that's sort of my that's sort of my go to weekly. I don't miss an episode. It's quite fun.
0: Nice. Well, speaking of fun, next question: What's the most fun that you have when you work?
1: You know, I had this experience not too long ago where we had a, an independent podcaster who really hit an audience beautifully and started to accelerate their audience, and they got to the point where and they hadn't really anticipated this, but they got to the point where they were doing a million downloads a month, which is just amazing. And we were actually able to get them a substantial amount of income per month where this really became something that they could live on. And I know that that's sort of the the Cinderella story. It doesn't always happen. But when it does happen and we get to be a part of it, it's so much fun. It's so much fun. And... I remember you know, the call with this particular creator, and I told him how much he was probably going to make on the Spotify Audience Network every month. And I could tell he just had to mute <laughs> because he had to <laughs> yell to his wife <laughs> oh. that, um, that this little podcast endeavor was going to change their experience. So that's so fun. That doesn't happen every day, but when it
0: does, it's thrilling. Oh, that's beautiful. And finally, what's one piece of advice that you would give to someone starting out a new podcast right now?
1: Kind of what we talked about earlier is that think about who your community is. Think about who it is you're trying to reach and if you can, for what purpose. I think there's just too much content out there now to not be really careful about what it is that you're trying to create. And then Build the content based on how you can reach that audience. Again, kind of the reverse engineering that we've talked about before. At the end of the day, podcasts is a beautiful tool to grow an audience, and it's a beautiful tool to build a community. And so you want to be thinking about that from day one and not just like, I've got a good idea. I'm just going to do a podcast and hope that it works out, hope that I find my audience. I think those days are over. And it can be quite disappointing if you haven't really thought that through.
0: I love that the reverse engineer idea is a powerful one to end on for today. Ray, this has been so much fun. Where can people keep up with you and follow you online if they want to keep up with your ideas?
1: So I think the best thing is to you know to head over to the website megaphone.fm, and there's places where you can get a hold of us and ask questions, and you know we welcome that inquiry. Megaphone, obviously, you know, is not for the single podcast that's not anticipating any kind of, of big numbers. That's our friends at Anchor. That is a fantastic platform. So I do encourage people to check out anchor.fm. But for those who are looking for some maybe uh, strategic alliances and looking for some real business opportunities, yeah, check us out at megaphone.fm. and I look forward to to hearing from you.
0: Fantastic. Thanks, Ray.
1: Thank you so much. This was a pleasure, Ben. Take care.
0: Thanks for tuning in. I'd love to hear what you thought of the episode and any ideas you've got for future content. You can email me directly at benworkweek.com. To keep up to date with the very latest content, make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with a friend who might find it useful? I'll see you next time.